Is there a conversation that you have in your head before you turn up to see a health professional? You know, the one that goes, I need to tell them this, this is how I might explain it, I probably won't tell them that. Or should I? What are they going to tell me? What do I need to know? Can I ask that? David Murray is an esophagogastric surgeon who also specialises in weight loss surgery. And before he gets inside your digestive system, quite literally, he wants to get inside your brain. What I find is really useful is just to let the person talk. There's uh, nothing worse than starting someone saying, yeah, well, I went to my GP and said this, and then you interrupt them and ask another question. I like to let people for a couple of minutes just talk. And uh, that way you can find out some of the information that hasn't been in the GP's letter. You get an idea of what's important to this person about the thing they've been sent with uh, and the things that have been worrying them, and then you sort of explore things further. Something that is very important to most people uh, is information about potential complications. So if someone's coming in for, you know, uh, let's say they're having a sleeve operation, a gastric sleeve operation, we're removing a large portion of their stomach and there's not actually anything wrong with their stomach. There's no reason to remove their stomach. You don't go to a doctor and say, can you remove my perfectly normal arm? And so if we're going to do an operation on an otherwise healthy organ, then we have to uh, be sure we're doing it for the right reasons and the person needs to be aware of the the uh, consequences of that decision, uh, potential risks and all that kind of stuff. And it's true for hernia operations, gallbladder operations, because fortunately the risk of major complications these days, it's incredibly low. It's incredibly safe surgery these days, but the risk of major complications is not 0%. So people need to know that there are risks. We do everything we can to avoid it, uh, but uh, unfortunately, they do still happen. We're vigilant about identifying them early. Uh, and uh, if you have the patient with an understanding of the surgery and what the potential consequences are, uh, then a well-educated patient is, uh, is a valuable resource in making sure we identify problems early. So let's become that well-educated potential patient, starting with what problems David is likely to see in our digestive tracts. The digestive tract is basically a big tube and uh, all kinds of problems can happen uh, with tubes. In many ways, it's like uh, plumbing. So uh, if there's a blockage in the plumbing pipes of your house, uh, the location of the blockage needs to be found. The thing that's causing the blockage needs to be identified and then it needs to be uh, removed or replaced or whatever it might be. Everything from people with digestive issues uh, all the way through to people who uh, struggle to manage their weight uh, and uh, everything in between. So everything from uh, major cancer of the esophagus and stomach uh, all the way through to things like hernias and gallbladders. And so in many ways, managing issues of the digestive tract is managing problems with how the tubes are working, whether it's blocked, obstructed or not working properly. I love this because on another episode, we talked to a colorectal surgeon and he also describes his job being a bit like a plumber. You're just the top end and he's the bottom end. Yeah, the uh, the more pleasant end of the digestive tract, the more <laughs> civilised end. <laughs> so what's happening for people at home? What kind of things are they experiencing before they come and see you? What, what feelings are they having? The, the symptoms that people have uh, are highly variable. So the symptoms that I often deal with are uh, people who have problems swallowing, people who have problems with uh, reflux, people who have problems with uh, digestion. The symptoms of esophagus and stomach problems are, uh, are those type of things, so problems uh, swallowing, problems tolerating food, problems being able to tolerate as much food as you used to be able to, uh, issues with reflux, 
they're highly variable. And so the symptoms are often very subtle and the symptoms often take a long time to develop. And it's surprising how much people can tolerate before they finally reach the end of their tether and go to see their GP. Uh, and so when people say, oh, you know, should I have come? Is this bothering you? I'm, I say to people that if you have a problem, just go to your GP and ask because uh, these days we know that the sooner we detect a problem, uh, the often the better we can treat it. Uh, and we've got all kinds of uh, different types of tests and investigations and scans that we can uh, diagnose a problem with these days. And as I said, the sooner we pick up a problem, often the easier and more successful treatment is. Let's talk about the, the weight loss surgery that you do. What's perhaps the biggest misunderstanding or the thing that people get wrong the most? The most important thing uh, that uh, I think people need to know about weight loss surgery and the thing that I think a lot of people come into the process not understanding is that the operation is not their salvation. The operation itself doesn't actually do anything to make you lose weight. The operation is purely a tool to uh, help you uh, maintain a lot of the good dietary and lifestyle habits that lead to a healthy weight. So if I see a 25-year-old who's been struggling with their weight all their life I tell them that I'm not worried about the next six months or one year. I'm worried about the next 60 years of their life because conceivably they'll live into their 80s. Now, in 60 years' time, I'm not going to be at the shopping centre or their dinner table with them. Their dietitian's not going to be there either. We have to uh, help them develop these new habits that will supplement the surgery and lead to their lifelong improved health outcomes. What happens for people after they have this surgery? Um, are people still as hungry? Are people, uh, do they feel sick? What, what actually happens after the surgery? After the operation, uh, there's various things that happen. So one of the roles of the operation is to change some of the hormones and physiology of the digestive tract and how their digestive tract interacts with their brain, which is ultimately the organ that uh, can, helps control weight. So people lose their appetite for a variable period after the operation, up to three to six months, but eventually your appetite returns because your body uh, will fight to maintain the weight that it's achieved. Uh, and so That sounds tough. So your body always tries to be at its biggest that it ever was. Yeah, your body jealously defends its weight. Your body is designed to uh, to maintain a particular weight. And so uh, people can often lose weight through diet and exercise programs or with medication. Uh, but the many studies around the world have shown that these kind of things work until they don't. So people will lose some weight uh, and then the weight will come back on and we often end up at a higher weight than what we were before those dietary efforts. The thing that research has shown surgery does is lead to a more significant amount of weight loss and also it seems to maintain that weight loss in the long term. Now when I say long term the studies these days are only out to you know sort of 15-20 years and so we don't know what's going to happen to people who have a sleeve operation in 60 years time um, but we think that we have a pretty good idea that it's going to lead to maintenance of a healthier weight in the long term. People have a lot of feelings about weight loss surgery. There's a lot of commentary about it. Is this how public funding, for example, should be spent? Is it an easy way out? Mm. How do you take all of that in? And I guess what would you say to people who might be listening to this? So metabolic surgery or weight loss surgery is definitely not the easy way out. Not only do you have to undergo a major surgery, which is permanent and irreversible and life-changing, uh, and will affect you for every every day for the rest of your life. You'll also have to diet and exercise like anyone else trying to lose weight. So uh, it, as I said, it's the hardest way there is to lose weight, not the easiest. With regards to the financial aspect, uh, unfortunately, that's still a discussion that we have with metabolic surgery these days, but uh, you don't have to 
look into the figures very much to work out that the break-even point for someone with diabetes, for example, is uh, as soon as 12 to 18 months after the operation. So you do one operation once, and instead of this person needing to buy insulin and needles and blood tests and manage further complications for the rest of their life, at the 18-month mark, you don't need to spend a cent on their diabetes or their weight ever again. Uh, and so in terms of the the efficacy and the value for the health dollar, as far as I'm concerned, there's not much that compares to surgery in terms of improving health outcomes and therefore how we spend our health dollars. If there's one person or one example that comes to mind for you that really makes you want to come in here, sit in the chair every day or go into the theatre, can you describe that for me? Uh, yeah, there was a lady uh, that operated on not, not long after I'd come to uh, Launceston as a consultant. She'd been a diabetic for many years. Uh, and one of the things that uh, bothered her most was that she couldn't chase her grandkids like she wanted to. Uh, and so she came in and had her operation done. When she saw me at the six-week mark after the operation, she was off all of her diabetic medication, which she'd been on for a long period of time. Uh, she'd halved her blood pressure medication and she was at a point where her bone and joint issues weren't bothering her as much and she could play with her grandkids. So, uh, And she continued from there and, uh, and the outcomes have continued to be fantastic. So for me to have done that with my own hands and you know the advice that she got from the psychologist and dietitian and the nursing staff and her friends and family that kind of uh, that kind of thing's hugely rewarding now when you walk in here i can see you've got a, an examination table with the curtain you've got your desk here what, what actually happens the interesting thing about a lot of specific upper gi problems or you know esophagus and stomach problems is that uh, the physical examination is often not very uh, yielding of much information. Esophagus and stomach problems are buried deep within the abdomen. The esophagus is about as far away from the surface as you can get, and so you, it's hard to physically examine people. So we rely a lot on uh, blood tests and scans, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, as I said, there's not much replacement for listening to people's symptoms and in the right circumstances of physical examination. Um, you've got a captive audience. There are people listening, and even if it's not for themselves, they might be thinking, oh, yeah, my aunt was complaining about something. I mean, what would you tell people to do? The most important thing is if you have a problem that you're concerned about, if there's symptoms you're concerned about, go to your GP uh, and talk to them about it. So very rarely hear a situation where a patient's turned up to their doctor with a problem and they've been sort of turned away. It, it just doesn't happen. And so if you're worried just ask about it because the GP's probably seen it half a dozen times that day already and they'll they'll put you in the right direction. What are the chances that we've all got our hands on our stomach right now seeing what we can feel in there? At least now we'll know when we need to get our hands on a phone and call the GP. Or better still, get your hands on someone else's phone and subscribe them to this podcast so that they too can become an informed patient because that's what this podcast, Health Speak, is all about. And funded by the Healthy Tasmania Community Innovation Grants through the Tasmanian Government.